we'll see tens of thousands of people who will leave prison with a degree. And we know that it increases their opportunities for employment, increases income, creates more safety in facilities because people are focused on their futures and constructively and occupied and have hope. And it reduces recidivism, so returns to prison, so therefore saves money. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Nick Turner, president of the Vera Institute of Justice, and someone you should know. At Vera, he's working to end the overcriminalization and mass incarceration of people of color, immigrants, and people experiencing poverty. He's working to create a country with safe, healthy, empowered communities and a fair, accountable justice system. We're not there yet. I really enjoyed getting to know Nick and learning how he came to such an important role, how he leads in these complicated political times, and where he's taking his organization. By the way, Nick also previously served as managing director of the Rockefeller Foundation. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Nick Turner with Vera. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Nick, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. So my name is Nick Turner. I'm the president and director of, of two organizations, the Vera Institute of Justice and Vera Action. Vera Action is is the Vera Institute's sister 501c4 organization. And both organizations exist to end mass incarceration and over-criminalization primarily of black, brown people in this country, but also, also really people who ex- are experiencing poverty. And we've focus our work on working with government leaders who are committed to the changes that we wish to make and share our value system, but also community organizations and impacted-led organizations that are, are similarly focused on, on the changes that we seek to make. And our main province really is to try to drive change in the systems of mass incarceration, where there are big problems, where we think there there are workable solutions that can change the life trajectories for, for thousands of, of people. Well, I've talked to a number of people on this podcast who are interested in that same area. I, I certainly am. I think I learned from a one of my kids' papers and some of the books she was reading about just how egregious the problem is and how many people are incarcerated, particularly by state law, even more than the federal law. And I'm glad you're out there working on this. You had mentioned before we started recording that you grew up in D.C., kind of quite close to where I live now. 
Can you t- tell me a little bit about what it was like to grow up here? I can. So I grew up in upper northwest D.C., literally on the border between D.C. and Chevy Chase, Maryland. So when the basketball from my errant shots in the driveway bounced across the street, they bounced into Maryland. I am half black and half Filipino. My dad was born and raised in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, and my mother in Manila, Philippines. And they were both doctors. They met in New Haven when they were doing fellowships. And then my mom decided to not, she just came to the States at the age of 24 to do a fellowship, thought she would return to the Philippines, met my dad and committed to a life here. And they started their lives in on Western Avenue in, in Chevy Chase, uh, D.C. But that being who I was, you know, when you and I were talking right before we got started, that the neighborhood that I grew up in was a very middle-class Irish Catholic neighborhood. And the folks that grew up in that neighborhood are Bill Bennett, who was a education secretary for Ronald Reagan, I believe. Brett Kavanaugh's family went to the Catholic church up the street that I went to as well. Pat Buchanan was also someone from the neighborhood. Our family was the only family of color that I knew and you know, for you know for blocks and and that certainly formed part of my my own experiences and my my thoughts about fairness in the country and was really influential in terms of my own thinking about racial and ethnic justice which I never described it as then as a kid but that was sort of the the frame it was a strange thing to grow up in a in a neighborhood where I felt different from many of the other folks and we actually didn't have a lot of childhood friends. Um, but one of the things that I think was really, really influential for me was the communities of faith in which I grew up in. So I went to Blessed Sacrament up the up the street. My mom insisted, you know, she was Catholic and she insisted that I should do the same. And despite the fact that that particular parish looked the way it looked and that we looked different from other folks there, I was exposed, you know, weekly to homilies about service and about caring for others and helping people in in poverty. And I went to a private school in DC called Sidwell Friends, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And it's a Quaker school. And what I loved about that institution was, was, was the value system that underpinned everything there. And that value system was a system of commitment to community tolerance and of service. And so when I think about my DC experience, the you know the the lens through which I saw things in the neighborhood in which I grew up where I felt uh, other but in these places of of faith where I was you know inculcated to think about caring for others um, and service and community, those ended up having a huge influence on, on my trajectory as an, uh, as an adult and, and why I've gotten into the work that I've gotten into. I noticed another point of overlap between us is that you were at Yale as an undergraduate, maybe one year off from when I was there. I don't know if this, if it, how much it came to your attention there, but that was during the divestment protests for South Africa. And I remember shanties built on Beinecke Plaza and and taken down by the university and student 
activists working pretty hard to get the university to change how they invested. How was that four years for you politically and what did it play any part in sending you down towards Vera? It's so f- funny that you raised that, Nathaniel. I mean, it, it, I remember the, that was my, f- my freshman year when those shanties went up and the divestment movement at, at Yale was, I think, at its apex. I remember, I remember well, the, the leader of the, um, or one of the leaders of that movement was a guy named Matthew Countryman, who I thought had the, just the best name. I, I, I know, yeah, I, I remember him well, and I know he's a professor now. Oh, is he really? I've lost track. And that was my first experience of activism in the sense of mobilization and demonstration. It wasn't central to me. I was curious. I hadn't seen or experienced something like that before. And so I remember often standing on the periphery of Beinecke Plaza and trying to make sense of it all probably in my callow youth thinking like well okay this is you know this is interesting i don't know that it's totally me probably then walking down to naples pizzeria to get a to get a slice so i you know i remember being struck by it but also you know not not knowing quite what to make of it when i think about what was ultimately influential to me at Yale College, and then in my you know four years afterwards between college and law school, you know there were two things. One was that I I studied uh, African American history at the college and and started to learn much of what you know my dad and his family didn't talk a whole lot about, but learn it from you know sort of from a distant perspective as a student in textbooks, learning about the campaigns of terror in the South with lynching, the Great Migration North, which is the story of my grandmother's own personal journey from Darlington, South Carolina, up up to Brooklyn when she was in her early 20s. And it opened up a real curiosity for me about who I was and the roots of my own experience that, that uh, my dad and the family didn't talk a whole lot about. And I I think I understand why they didn't talk a lot about it. My grandmother's story down south was that she was the product of of a of of a sexual relationship, perhaps forcible, perhaps n- not. But her mom was a was a teenager who was working as a housekeeper, as a maid in in a rich uh, white family's house, and. Th- the, one of the younger generation had sex with her. My grandmother's mom died in childbirth or shortly after childbirth. And so then my my grandmother was then sent off to live with the black side of the family and spent a lot of time in Darlington with the pain of that and then seeing her father and the father's family walk around town without any kind of recognition. So she was orphaned and I think it was just a painful thing and so she moved up to to Brooklyn in her early 20s but never really spoke about this at all and I think as my dad's family was very stoic in that regard and my dad went on to be one of two black students at, at Amherst College and then went on to to medical school and so they were very much striving 
to escape, I think, the difficulties of the past. And so they didn't talk about it much. So my looking at it from the perspective of a curriculum at, at Yale College was just a fascinating thing for me to to do and made me wonder more about who I was. So that was one thing that was really important at Yale. And then the second thing was that Yale is in New Haven. And you know what New Haven is like. It is one of the poorest cities. It was then and still is one of the poorest cities in the country. And so I did a lot of volunteer work um, with elementary school kids and some mentoring and big brothering and so on. So when I came back to D.C. after graduating in 1989, I decided that I wanted to work to do something in Washington to help my home city, you know, and I ended up working as a outreach counselor for uh, teenagers who had either gotten caught up in the court system uh, or dropped out of school or maybe gotten caught up in the drug trade and uh, essentially spent four, four years at a place called Sasha Bruce Youth Work first as an outreach counselor, then running a substance abuse prevention program. And Sasha Bruce was it was the only organization in the city that ran an emergency shelter for, for runaway and homeless kids and kids who were living on the street. That was incredibly influential to me. We just talked about the neighborhood where you live and where, where I was raised. So I went from Sidwell Friends School which despite this, the positive influence of the values of community and tolerance and service was profoundly privileged. In in my class of 96 people, 16 of us went to Yale College. Half of us went to Ivy League schools. I don't know that that happens anymore, but it was a true feeder school. I mean, they get the kids of presidents. Yeah, that happened after I I left, but that's exactly but that's exactly right. And then so returning to DC to to work on the, you know, on the other side of the river in ward 7 and 8 with young people who I was 6 or 7 years older than who were just as clever and had like greater life skills than any of my classmates, but for the accident of birth in a in a particular zip code, um, their trajectories were looking so different from those of my classmates and from me. That was a profound, profound life experience that made me commit to myself at that time that issues of racial equity and fairness and opportunity for black and brown kids in this country were things that I wanted to work on for the you know the entirety of my life. So so that one that those are the influence I think that really 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 drove me. Was there any person that you counseled in particular whose story stands out as you know important or representative from that four year period? There's almost a montage that I think about. In the last year that I worked at Sasha Bruce, um, and I was running this school-based substance use prevention program, so we were working with sixth graders and doing a lot of education and connecting them with activities and so on. There was a young man who was seen as being a problem in the classroom, seen as being disruptive and hyper. And so whenever the teacher was in the classroom with me, she would always stand behind him and she would stand with her hands on his shoulders um, because it was calming for him and it was a way to keep him from being disruptive. But at the beginning of every month, um, he wouldn't come to school. This is a 12-year-old boy. And so he was labeled as a 
truancy problem. And what I learned over the course of doing some home visits and spending some time with him was that he didn't go to school because he would wait at home for his mom's public assistance check so that he could then go because she had drug problems and he could he could go cash it and then buy groceries for the house because his fear was that if he wasn't there that that wouldn't happen and that that money would get spent on on other things and so to think of it like a 12 year old who sort of been labeled as a behavior problem and a chronic truant but what he was contending with and the kind of maturity and sense of responsibility that I had never encountered in 12-year-olds before to, to run certain things in his household, the resilience and resourcefulness, that stands out in my mind. And I think about him a lot, and I occasionally Google and get like two searches in, and then I stop because I'm worried about finding out what actually happened to him. But there were lots of other young people who didn't have that kind of hardship. They had sort of common challenges that I remember all of our peers, that they broke curfew, that they didn't do their homework, that they were disrespectful or that they ran away. I had classmates at Sidwell Friends who ran away from home, but they'd run to some friend's house in Spring Valley or Potomac or whatever it might be. Those smaller issues were so much more disruptive for the young people that I worked with at Sasha Bruce because there was no real safety net to support them and and a school system that wasn't especially engaged to support them and and difficult neighborhoods. So there's this montage of some kids really deeply challenging settings and then others who were just like dealing with run of the mill challenges but the structure and the scaffolding for them was non-existent. And that just made me incredibly mad that that could exist in the city that I was raised in, only four miles away from where I grew up. What was it that made you want to go back to New Haven and do a law degree? Well, I loved working at Sasha Bruce and I learned more there and probably grew more than the young people in the families that I worked with, I became increasingly frustrated with direct services because there were a lot of young people that if they had been on a challenged path, they would choose to go back to school or they would um, complete their court programs effectively, but return to schools that were socially promoting them with sixth grade reading levels where the articulated ambition was to get a barbering certificate or to get a cosmetology certificate or something of that nature. There were certainly kids that were going to college and so on, but the point was is that it was the there were ceilings that existed for so many of these young people who sought to try to achieve more. And those ceilings were imposed by the structures, the neighborhoods that they lived in, the decrepit and dangerous housing that they might have lived in or the schools that really weren't preparing them. So I I wanted to work on those problems. I wanted to work on systemic problems. And right around that time there were two things that were that were happening in our world. One is that Bill Clinton had been elected president and there was a lot of talk of Yale Law School as a place that produced leaders. There was Bill Clinton, there was Hillary Clinton, there was 
Anita Hill a few years before that. There was even Clarence Thomas. So it wasn't necessarily just about the ideology. There was Marion Wright Edelman, who was a hero of mine who was running the Children's Defense Fund. Um, and so I got into the law school and I, I had no intention of wanting to be a, a lawyer. I had never given second thought to being a practicing lawyer, but I, I understood it as a place that people who wanted to make a contribution to society to do public service, that that was a good place to go. And so, and, and so I, I went there. The second thing that was happening at that time was in DC at that, at that moment in time, we were a few years into the crack epidemic. We were into a few years into a, an epidemic of violence. So homicides were probably double what they are in DC right now. And there were a lot of families that were being torn apart by drug addiction AIDS was fairly new on the scene. And so there was a sense of sort of desperation and disarray. And the the main policy agenda at that time, because crime was high, was a tough on crime agenda and instinct. And President Clinton was part of that. He wanted to be a Democrat who was not going to be outflanked on the right. So he was tough in the campaign. He returned to Arkansas to witness the the execution of a, a person in Arkansas who was facing the death penalty, who had had borderline intelligence, you know, as a signal, like I I will be tough. And and after he was elected, there was a lot of movement that eventually led to the 1994 crime bill. So I had this sense, like watching these young people who I worked with, seeing that they either had like profound challenges that society had failed. The government had failed to address properly, or they had run-of-the-mill teenage challenges, and the systems that were in place weren't going to help them succeed. And instead, the answer was, we're going to tighten the screws. We're going to like lock them up more. We're going to be zero tolerance on these young people. Like That made me sick. So I went to law school with an intent to figure out how to work on policies like that and um, to apply some degree of righteousness in what I had seen um, in my time at, at Sasha Bruce to hopefully influence those systems in a different way than I saw them being influenced. Did you find what you were looking for there? <laughs> you know, I, I laugh because I really disliked it for the first year. In some respects, law school is, it's a trade school. Like, you learn how to write a brief, how to how to blue book, which is how to cite cases and law reviews properly, studying things like contracts and torts, which I had zero interest in. I found it alienating at first. I made a lot of really wonderful friends. And so after that first year, it did indeed get better. But it was a it was an alienating first year experience, and I remember going there and and immediately going to a community based organization there called Leap, which was not unlike Sasha Bruce Youth Work, and signing up to to be a mentor and big brother for a group of five young people who were living in the Dixwell Houses, which was the public housing project right behind the the gym. Because I didn't want to lose track of what I had been doing in D.C. and because I was struggling to integrate myself into this into this law school where 
everyone was profoundly intelligent, profoundly ambitious, and the curriculum was something that I wasn't really vibing with. Wow, that sounds like a tough stretch there, actually. It was a, a, a tough stretch, but I don't want to overstate it either because some of my very closest friends in my life I've made there, and, and I was eventually able to make good use of being there. I took other classes. The wonderful thing about that law school is that there's intellectual freedom and it's really encouraged. So I I did a clinic on housing and community development where one project was to, to help an affordable housing developer put together the deal, the financing deal for affordable housing. The other project, which was fascinating, was to, to work with a, a community leader in the Dixwell houses. There was some vacant space across Dixwell Avenue, and she wanted to turn it into a laundromat because that community didn't have a laundromat within a mile and a half. And so a group of us, law students, business students, architecture students, got together to put together a business plan for her and to sketch out the design of the place and to help engage in the construction of it, at least the architecture students did. And, uh, and so I was able to do things like, like that. And I made friends, you know, Corey Booker, who everyone now knows very well, was in the class behind me. And he was my Black Law Students Association little brother, not that he needed a big brother, because he knew what he was up to. But we we really bonded on a, a trip that we took to Greenhaven Prison in New York State, which is known for having some of the most excellent education and exchange programs. And it was it was there that that we were together able to start to think about prison reform and the overall reform of the system that I work on today and that he's committed to working on and has been. So, so there was like a lot of richness there. So whatever the sort of self-pity, poor me, first year experience, I was able to get over that, find my footing. And I credit the place for giving me the breadth of running room and the freedom to be able to pursue what I really wanted to, to pursue. What was your path from there to Vera? Vera is a 62-year-old institution. It is now. And at its founding there were many people who were associated with Yale Law School who were associated with Vera. So Burke Marshall, who was the first assistant attorney general for civil rights, was the very first chair of Vera. And my criminal sentencing professor, Dan Freed, was also on the Vera Board of Trustees, as was another constitutional law professor. So I was taking a class with Dan Freed, and I had written a paper on sentencing, criticizing a Harvard professor's defense of a Minnesota statute that punished people who possessed crack cocaine more so than powder cocaine. And those kinds of statutes end up having a racially disparate impact because of who uses which drug. And this professor had published a, a paper defending that statute, saying that that was an appropriate defense of the Black community, that the Black community had been harmed by 
the crack trade and there was violence that spun off of it. And so it was a legitimate and constitutional statute. So I wrote this paper disagreeing with it. And Dan Freed said, well, you know, let me send it to someone who knows this work really well and get some comments. And he sent it to Chris Stone, who was the then director of Vera. And I don't remember whether Chris commented on it or not. I don't have a recollection of that, but that's the very first, well, it's the second time I heard of Vera. The first time I heard of Vera was when my older sister's best friend, who was a few years ahead of me in Yale Law School, said, Nikki, you're going to love Yale Law School. You're going to go, and then you're, you should go work at this place called the Vera Institute of Justice. And she knew that because she had heard about it from other circumstances. So I ended up applying to Vera as a summer intern. And so I was an intern in the summer of 1995, and I kind of fell in love with the organization, and it hasn't gotten rid of me since. It sent me away for a few years, but I've basically been connected to it ever since. What's the source of the name Vera? Uh, Vera is the is the mother of the philanthropist who started the organization, Louis Schweitzer. So Louis Schweitzer was a philanthropist in the 50s and 60s and 70s in New York. In the early 60s, 1961, the mayor of New York was facing a, an overcrowding problem at Rikers Island and in the houses of detention. And his sense was that the problem was that people couldn't afford to pay bail. So he approached Louis Schweitzer and said, can you help me solve this problem? Schweitzer said yes, put some money to it, hired the very first director of Vera who developed an alternative to, to bail, that you could release someone on their recognizance by looking at their ties to the community or ties to family, and that those would be a better predictors of someone's willingness to return to court. That proved to be true. So Vera was in on bail reform at that point in time, and that's how the place got its start. And that actually speaks a lot to the way the organization works. You um, have at least two stretches with Vera, not counting internship. So there's kind of pre-Rockefeller and post. Tell me about the first one. How big is that place? What was your role? What kind of things were happening? Well. I should say that the thing that captivated me about Vera was when I was a summer intern in July of 1995, sitting in the lobby, and in walks a woman who turns out to be Doris Meisner. And Doris Meisner was then the commissioner of the then Immigration and Naturalization Service, so she, President Clinton's top person on immigration. And she came to Vera because she knew about the work that we had done on pretrial reform and on getting people out of detention. And she said, I want to do this in the immigration context. So she just knocked on Vera's door. There had been no contact before. And she did this at a moment in time, a year after the 1994 crime bill had been passed. There was a lot of sort of virulent anti-immigration stuff floating around in, you know, in Congress, it ended up getting enacted in 1996. And yet here's this leader of the federal immigration institution coming to Vera to say, in this environment, I want to figure out how to get people out of detention. And you're the place that I think can help me do that. And we did end up doing that. But I was so struck that this, that this could happen. So I saw that and I saw Vera as a really important place 
to change the trajectory of dominant institutions and to use sort of an inside lane and credibility and an ability to innovate to drive that change. So I wanted to come back to Vera even after I graduated. I clerked for a judge in Brooklyn, and then I went to a big law firm for a while. And then, and then when a job opened up, which was essentially to be Chris Stone's special assistant, Chris was the president, I, I joined. And I did a bunch of work at that point in time, developing new initiatives, learning how to fundraise a bit, and eventually ran a, a, a project that focused on state sentencing and corrections, how to reduce state populations. And at that point in time, we were the country was in the middle of a recession. So states were feeling the impact of that. And there was an argument that was receiving some traction in states that that you could reduce the correctional system's footprint and save money and conservatives like that. That was one of Vera's first sort of the modern iterations of our national work that we do a lot of now. Uh, at that point in time, Vera was still mostly New York City focused and essentially operating as an incubator, uh, running demonstration projects that it would spin off as as nonprofits um, in New York. So like right now in New York, there are about 20 or so nonprofits that are Vera progeny that work on post-prison release jobs, victim services, indigent defense, alternatives to incarceration. So Vera, that was still the portfolio of Vera's work. And I ended up joining to really build out more of the, the national work. So how big was the staff, not counting all the progeny and all that? The organization then was, a, uh, the budget was around, um, I mean, it was around 10 or $11 million. And I think the staff was probably about 70 people. And what is it now? Right now, our, our operational budget is, a, is around uh, $75 million, and we have about 280 staff. It's grown substantially over your your time there and not there. And that becomes quite a lot to manage, I assume. Uh, it's a lot to manage. <laughs> <laughs> How come you were, in your words, sent away, which... Uh, managing director of Rockefeller Foundation. What was that interim for you? What, why were you there and what were you doing? I was being facetious. In truth, I wasn't sent away. I had spent nine years in the organization and and the last role I had was as chief program officer, so had sort of moved up the, the ladder. And I was in my late 30s and I, I wanted to experience a, a different environment to, to work in. I wanted to work on different issues as much as I loved loved Vera, I thought that it was important for me to to exist in other institutions and in other contexts. So, the Rockefeller Foundation at that point in time, about two years before that, Judith Roden, who had been the then president of the University of Pennsylvania, and she was the first female president ever of an Ivy League school, had come on to take on Rockefeller, and her task, as she saw it, was to modernize an institution that had a tremendous legacy that was coming up on its 100th anniversary that probably needed a bit of a refresh. And so I was really interested in going into not so much philanthropy, although I learned a ton, but I was interested in going into an environment of working in an organization that was really storied 
but needed to evolve and to be part of a team and to observe a leader who was executing that change. And it was an incredible uh, education for me. And I worked on a variety of issues, transportation reform, housing and community development in New Orleans, the growth of of, of cities globally, uh, economic security. And it was intellectually stimulating, but it allowed me to see much more of the world than I would have if I had stayed at Fira. And that's exactly why I, I wanted to make that switch. What took you back? Well... I think the time that I had at Rockville, so there were a few things that I was saying. So justice reform was always in my heart. I was always committed to that, even though at Rockefeller, that wasn't the reason for me being hired and I didn't work on those those issues. But I saw change happening. You talked about how you started to really think deeply about these issues because I believe you said it was your your daughter who read a read a book. So right at that point in time, uh, Michelle Alexander had put out uh, the new Jim Crow. I read that. Yep. So, so that marks the beginning of a very different different epoch for the justice reform world, an, an epoch where the general public, which I would say up until then had basically not thought a lot about the harms and damage that are conventional system of delivering public safety. And if your podcast folks could see me, they would see that I just applied air quotes. Law enforcement driven, jail incarceration, prison incarceration driven system. That's what the public was told was needed if you wanted to be safe. And most people believed it and they believed it for decades and decades. And so Michelle wrote this book. And at the same time, we were seeing around the states this new right-left alliance to drive some change. So the ACLU working with Coke Industries. And we're starting to just see much more movement and take up and what I often describe as the great um, American awakening to the deep harms that this system, which was an international aberration at that point in time, I mean, by 2010, this country accounted for 25% of all the incarcerated people on the globe. The country itself was only 5% of people on the globe. And so I saw that movement happening. And from where I sat at Rockefeller, having benefited from observing and funding and supporting movements in different sectors, I had a sense that Vera, this incredible institution that I owed so much of my own development to, needed to evolve in the same way that the world was evolving. You know, Trayvon Martin was murdered in 2012. That marked the real, real sort of visible beginning of the Black Lives movement. The right-left stuff that I talked about, Michelle Alexander's book, you know, if you were to try to do a search, you would see that mass incarceration as a term was not really used before 2011. So there was a, a consciousness that was raising, and I thought a power that was beginning to come to a slow simmer. And I wanted to come back to Vera to help position the organization to make as much change as was possible in the midst of this shift that I was seeing. Did you come back as president? I did. And what does president do at Vera? <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking very basic questions. 
So when I was hired by the board of directors, they said, what's your vision for the organization? And I said, listen, I it would be presumptuous of me after having been gone for seven years to say that. I think I need to come back. I need to listen and understand what's happening better. But here's what I see happening in the world. There's a new politics. There's a, a rising consciousness. The demographics are clear. We're gonna, this country is going to be majority-minority in 2042, 2045, and it's becoming increasingly metropolitan. And those are big exogenous factors that are going to shape the direction of the policies that we work on. And if we're going to be majority-minority, we can't have systems of incarceration where if you're a black baby boy that is born today said this in 2013, you have a one in three shot of spending time in jail and prison. Not only is that immoral and unjust, it's bad for the country. So I said, I don't have a vision, but I know that that's the environment in which we have to work and we have to figure out how we're really going to tackle these problems and figure out how to tackle them at a meaningful level. So I had to articulate a a vision. I have to figure out how to move the organization that was not so organized around that vision? How do you create a culture to buy into that vision? How do you build a workforce that has the necessary tools to execute on that vision? And then how do you put gas in the tank to be able to execute that vision? And that gas in the tank is, you know, a fundraising but it's also having others, you know, stakeholders in the field understand the changes that we're making, its reputation, its credibility. So my job is articulating vision, making a very limited set of decisions and building teams that have the capacity to, to, to drive that vision and to operationalize it, and, and then bringing in the necessary resources so that we can travel that road. It's basically those things. Now, how that takes like 11 hours a a day or whatever is a whole different story, but it's basically those three things. What did you find most challenging in turning that ship and bringing in the resources and changing the vision and all, all of those things that don't happen overnight anywhere? Well, the thing that was most challenging is that and every leader new leader of a of an organization uh hears this people say what's your vision what's the big idea that you want to do and so you have to be able to answer that and then you get into the organization and you think well how do i execute on whatever this idea might be and the biggest challenge that i encountered was that vera was a healthy organization doing good work but there were no resources to start to tilt towards that vision. There's very little in what we call unrestricted revenue, which just means the consider it your checking account to be able to invest in new ideas. Most of the money that came into the organization is what's called restricted, meaning that it's for a particular purpose. So the organization was a little bit locked into the strategies of its funders rather than its own strategy. And it took a while to be able to break out of that and to be able to get some clearance to start to execute on this notion that the organization in an age of recognized mass incarceration and overcriminalization, in an age of increasing power of activism and mobilization and organization, in an age where people were truly interested in these issues, that we could develop lines of work 
and fund those lines of work to be able to play at the level that I thought we needed it to play at. It took a few years to dig out of that hole and then also to persuade people within the institution, whether they were trustees or whether they were staff, that the work you're doing is good and I respect that and I value it and it's the platform that we're going to build on, but we got to try something new and we have to be very forward oriented. And that that kind of change management is, is uh, just really, really hard. Where did you find that external support? Who ends up backing these changes? The Ford Foundation and Darren Walker, who's president of Ford. I worked with him for a few years when he when he was at Rockefeller. He was the vice president who I reported to. And he became president of Ford around the same time that I became president of Vera. And I didn't ask him for anything initially. I waited for a year and a half. I felt like I needed to clean up a little bit and get my ducks in, in order and then eventually go to, to funders and say, we're ready to make change. If you provide us with support, you're not just filling a budget hole or tying up loose ends. This is going to affirmatively go to driving a, a whole new vision. So he was someone who believed in leadership of color and and still does and committed to supporting people like me, but also has done a lot to, to move Ford's funding to essentially trust-based funding is to make general support investments in nonprofits and their leaders say like, you know, you know what's happening. You have credibility. We believe in you as an institution. We believe in you as a leader. And so we're going to invest and we're not going to tell you what you need to do. So Ford took the first big step with us, but so did Open Society Foundations, so did you know a number of other foundations, MacArthur and the Balmer Group and a few others. So we were able to build up some real momentum. The humble thing that I want to say is we were surfing a wave. You know, from 2012 onward, there was an increasing interest in our issues. Like I talked about, an increasing recognition of the harms that are caused by the system. And so there was a relative flood of capital into justice reform in a way that this field had never seen before. So it was important for us to be positioned as a quote-unquote legacy organization with all of the credibility and heft that accompanied that, but with a recognition that we couldn't be doing the legacy thing. We had to be doing the work of current times and make sure that it was sufficiently ambitious and that we were using technologies of the day in order to to, to drive change. So what were some of those new things that you were doing and how do they impact the world? Well, so you remember I was talking to you a little bit about how the Vera that I joined as an intern in 1995 was largely an incubator of nonprofit innovations, that it would run demonstration projects on alternatives to incarceration, indigent defense, it would essentially create solutions to problems, test those things for effectiveness. And if they were effective, then it would spin them off as freestanding nonprofits. So that was the original model of Vera, an incubator, a, a, a place of social entrepreneurship before those words were used. Our theory about what Vera needed to be doing was that, that 
we got to this system of mass incarceration and mass policing as a function of democracy. It's a function of policymaking. You're not going to be able to tackle those things if you think you can direct service your way out of them. You have to be able to change policy and practice at a large scale, at a national scale. And so what are the tools that are necessary to, to do that? Data and facts helps, but that that's not enough alone, I think, as we all know well now. You need to have strong narrative. You have to be able to tell um, stories about the desired uh, place you want to arrive at. You have to humanize the people, tell stories that are not dehumanizing. Think about Willie Horton as like the ultimate dehumanizing story. How do we tell stories about like the real people who are trapped in this system, who are harmed by it, so that the public and policymakers um, understand who they are helping if they change policy. We also needed to have stronger advocacy capacity to be able to move policy and changes in city halls or or state legislatures. So the tools of the new current Vera are not anymore the tools of running demonstration projects and testing their efficacy and spinning them off. They are tools of running big strategic campaigns that are designed to make significant change. So I'll give you two examples just so you have a sense of it. One was that a number of years ago, we recognized that there was an opportunity to bring high quality post-secondary education, college education, trades education to incarcerated students. The history of it was that in the 1994 crime bill banned the use of Pell Grants, federal financial aid for low-income students, for students in prison. That act closed close to 700 programs that existed at that time, and then they dwindled down to a census of like eight. And the only ones that survived that were ones that were philanthropically supported. So around 2018, 2019, we saw that there was growing momentum to perhaps repeal that ban. So we initiated a campaign first to focus on six states where there were sort of mini Pell bans to get those bans repealed so that we could then go to Congress and say, look, in Ohio, Michigan, North Carolina, New Jersey, Tennessee, there is policy movement and it's red, purple, and blue to repeal similar bans should do the same thing at the federal level. And we operated with a coalition to eventually drive repeal of the Pell ban that came into effect in December of 2020. So that ban was repealed 26 years after it had been put in place. That meant that the funding for college programs would get turned back on, Congress said, in July of 2023. So we're six months, seven months away from that. And what we've been doing since is helping correctional and higher education partnerships get ready for that moment, share best practices, focus on how they can reduce racial disparities, which always emerge whenever there's a public good that's offered, how, to, how they could make sure that black and brown students were benefiting as much when that money turned back on. And we worked with the Department of Education to help set up the policy structure 
underlying the the federal law and got in place some accreditation standards so that you wouldn't have predatory programs going into prisons. There would be a quality standard. So that's an example where as a function of legislative policy change, which required advocacy and communications and storytelling, and then the last three years of doing some really sort of nitty gritty, like super nerd technical assistance on accreditation and how to program structure to reduce racial disparities and how to get these partnerships ready. When the Pell money turns back on in July of 2023, there will be some 400,000 people who are incarcerated who will be eligible for post-secondary education. Now, not all of them will get it because it takes time to build that capacity, but we'll see tens of thousands of people who will leave prison with a degree. And we know that it increases their opportunities for employment, increases income, creates more safety in facilities because people are focused on their futures and constructively and occupied and have hope. And it reduces recidivism, so returns to prison, so therefore saves money. When I kind of chuckled when I said, look, facts are important, like those facts have always been in existence, but you need the narrative power and you need the legislative and lobbying and advocacy muscle to be able to get people to pay attention to those facts at the right time. So that's an example of how Vera has gravitated from you know, again, running a demonstration project or demonstration projects to really trying to pursue big policy agendas. I'm curious about how you saw the politics of this changing during this period. So Trump is president for a number of those years where, you know, the first step back was passed. Van Jones is involved, but also conservative senators and it's ultimately signed by the president who isn't known for his progressive impulses. How did you play in that arena of complicated, odd bedfellows sort of politics? And how do you see that world of politics around your main issue right now? There are sort of dichotomies that exist in the Republican handling of these issues. On on one hand, we can all harken back to the inauguration and the run-up to Trump being elected, that he engaged in a lot of the same fear-mongering and rhetorical hyperbole. American carnage. Yes, right. That's exactly what I was going to say. American, yeah. American carnage and the vilification of black and brown people, you know, the rapists and murderers coming across the border. That happened. That influences people. That is definitely a strand of the Republican Party. And we see that in the Tom Cottons of the world. And we certainly saw a lot of that kind of stuff in the run-up to the midterm elections. But underneath that, we have to remember that the justice system, in fact, is mostly local and state. And that in those places, positive things are happening, that there's been progress. If we talk about post-secondary education for incarcerated students, 48 states right now are gearing up for the Pell Grants to be turned back on. So that's red, purple, and blue. There are states that are, are working on ending exclusions to affordable housing 
for people with a criminal record. There are states of all different stripe that are ending what we call the collateral consequences, like the barriers. When people are released from prison, they're often not allowed to pursue certain jobs because of certification or licensing requirements or outright bans. There are states that are ending those things. There's been a lot of conversation in the country about progressive prosecutors and the the right absolutely demonized them in the context of the recent rise in crime, saying, oh, it's all the fault of Alvin Bragg or Chesa Boudin in San Francisco or George Gascon in LA. But progressive prosecutors all over the country in states like Indiana and Missouri and Georgia and Vermont and Minnesota are making changes to the way prosecution is driven so that you can say that not only are they pursuing safety, but they're pursuing justice. So if you get past the really visible and the super loud rhetoric and fear-mongering, there's a lot of really important work that is actually being done. It's just that no one covers it. The media doesn't tend to spend a ton of attention on these issues. So you have to acknowledge that duality. And we at Vera have partners on the right, the American Conservative Union, prison fellowships, faith and freedom are all organizations that we, our street, are examples of organizations that we work with that are committed to, to justice reform. So so the story that one might gather from the past midterm elections where the last stat that I saw was that Republicans spent $157 million on crime ads to demonize Democrats, which was more than they spent on ads around the economy and inflation. If that's all you see, you might think, holy shit, whatever bipartisan stuff that we thought we saw 10 years ago is out the window. But it's a more complicated story than that. And there is indeed at the local level and state level, a pretty resilient coalition of people across ideologies and institutions across ideologies that are continuing to make change. I mean, Democrats, maybe it's let up a little because of those midterm results, but Democrats seem to feel vulnerable on the crime front. Should they be? Should they be thinking that that they are? The wisdom of experience, you know, a few minutes ago, we were talking about President Clinton committing to not be outflanked on the right. Democrats have always, at least as long as I've been alive, in the 70s and 80s and 90s and aughts, have always been seen as being soft on, on crime. And when you look at surveys, voters have less faith in Democrats on crime and safety issues than they do Republicans. And so Republicans have been adept time and time again, cementing that brand. I would say that in the last midterm, there's a there's another complicated story that I that I really want to explain, which is that despite all of the money and all of the fear mongering as a national matter, the returns suggested that this play on crime and safety and fear had less of an impact than people thought it would. However, what Democrats need is an affirmative vision for safety and justice. And 
I think where Democrats have failed in the past is that they've been unwilling to acknowledge that safety is a concern of everyone, that public safety matters to everyone. I understand why that's the case. Public safety has been this thing that has been, we need more police and more prisons in order to to have public safety. And and the question has always been, well, public safety for whom? And it's been something that has been racist in its use. There's, you know, there's, I'm sure you've had guests who have been on the show who've talked about the criminalization of blackness and why, and that sort of the trope and how, again, let's go back to Willie Horton as a, as the image that was put out by George Bush as as a indicator of the true softness of Democrats, but you know also meant to create to to tap into the public's view of quote unquote scary black man as rapist murderer. So so there's reluctance in the Democratic Party to to acknowledge that safety matters to people because of that blighted racist history. But it does. And when you look at the electorate, and what we tell candidates and, and electeds is black and brown people, we did an exit survey for black and brown people, crime and safety was a greater concern than it was for white people. And they articulated that the concerns existed in their neighborhoods, in our neighborhoods more than white people. White people are like, oh, it's somewhere else. Whatever. It's a city of carnage. Uh, but for black folks and brown folks, it was like, no, this is happening here in my neighborhood. So it's a failure on the part of Democrats to not acknowledge that. And what we saw some people doing during the election was when they would get attacked, they would quickly deflect. Well, you know, public safety is an issue. How did the Republicans show support for the police in January 6th? Or, well, let's pivot and talk about abortion, or let's pivot and talk about something else. And my take on it and the take of my organization, Vera Action, is you have to have an affirmative vision. You have to say, and you have to believe, everyone deserves safety and security, but we also deserve truth and real solutions, not scare tactics. And the real solutions exist. We have to su- support the police and the difficult jobs that they do, but we ask them to do way too much. We ask them to deal with truants. We ask them to deal with people who are suffering from mental Ill- illness or, or breakdown. We ask them to come when there's noise on the corner or when people are congregating. We call 911 when there's a cat in a tree. And we're asking the police to do all of these things. And they're not well capacitated to do them. And so we need to have them focus on the things that really matter, which are violent crime and closing cases for violent crime. And then we have to create and invest in the solutions for mental illness, for homelessness, for substance use. We know that 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 Police and jails and prisons are not the answer alone, and we have to. And we know the harm it causes, so we need to divert as many people as possible away from those systems. And I think the last thing that I want to make a point about here, Nathaniel, is that you know Vera did some research and and saw that every year there are around ten and a half million arrests in the country. Guess what percentage of them are for violent crimes? Very very small. Yep, 
of those arrests are for conduct that relates to homelessness, mental illness, substance use, use, and poverty. So we're essentially wielding this tool, law enforcement, and it's really good at enforcing and arresting for a bunch of things that either community or public health systems are better able to address. And so we, we need to make sure that those things are in place that we're investing in those things. And that's what truly provides community safety. So if we have a very deep mass incarceration problem, we have far more people in prisons and jails than make sense. And we have a genuine need for public safety. How do we get to the place and what is the place where we have the right level of protection from violent criminals that can't be trusted to be rehabilitated or reformed or need to be punished for whatever philosophical reason makes sense. At some core, there's some difficult decisions to make and there's risks. When you let somebody out and they go back and do something bad, it harms the whole system. What should we be changing like globally, systemically to get this closer to right? Well, the the first thing that I'll say is that democracy got us here. So democracy has to get us out. The system that we have, which really started to be built exponentially in the Nixon administration, it didn't have to be that way. I mean, there's nothing special about the United States. I mean, we did it because that's what elected leaders promised, and we voted for them, and they put in place mandatory minimums and habitual offender laws and so on and so forth. So the way out of it is also a function of democracy, too. And it's generational. You know, so there's some incremental changes that we should always be making, but we should always have our our eye on the North Star that we want safe, thriving, secure, and healthy communities. And what we know are that communities that can be characterized that way are ones that have access to good jobs, access to health care, quality education, quality housing. We have to keep our eye on, on that. And we have to build up what I would say are those foundations, those things that I just mentioned, we have to be investing in education, housing, good jobs, and so on. That's a foundation. And then the next thing is that we have to learn to dissuade ourselves, and it requires some rewiring, that police, jails, and prisons are the answer. The facts are very clear, actually, that that they are not the answer. Maybe the answer for a small slice of conduct, but they're not the answer. And then the third thing we have to do is that we have to invest in the capacities that will address the underlying causes of conduct that gets people arrested. Again, so being homeless or having a breakdown of in someone calls 911 you know there are community responses so what we're seeing all over the country now are that cities are are expanding something called mental health crisis response call 911 if there's not a crime of violence that is taking place that call gets routed to mental health specialists and they go and they 
address the issue. So we have to build out all of that stuff. And it's doable. I mean, it, New York City is a, despite the rhetoric of our current mayor, is a classic example of what this country can do. In the mid-90s, we had a jail population of 22,000. We had 2,200 murders a year. Over the 30 years that followed that, the city became much safer. We reduced crime in the city by 80% and reduced the jail population so it now sits at around 5,000 and invested in alternatives to incarceration, invested in civic organizations that are providing structure and care for, for people and alternatives and support for them. This has happened in lots of other parts of the country, but it's incredibly important to talk about it in New York, that you can actually go down this path. You can reduce your reliance on police, jails, and prison invest in the things that actually make communities more stable, invest in interventions that are less harmful and get at the problem, and that it produces results. So more people have to understand that that can in fact be the case. They have to lock on to the, the narratives. But the, the work of democracy is in states and counties all over the country. And so we need strong movement and organizers and activists who are continuing to push us. We need politicians. What I just said about the Democratic Party, people need to have an affirmative view and be able to articulate that you can have both safety and justice, that you don't have to ape the Republicans and say, you know, all right, you guys tried too hard on the justice thing. We got to lock people up because the evidence is there to support that you can have both, but you have to muscularly own that issue. So if we can get the politicians to talk that way, if we have the power in movement and organizing to keep pushing this, if we've got the facts and the storytelling at our disposal, we can move to that to that North Star. I'm confident of it. Nick, if you were in dialogue with the young man, you that was working at Sasha Bruce, was it? Yes. How would that conversation go? I imagine an impatience from the young to get this done already. And yet the reality of the political change that you talked about with Pell Grant was multiple decades and it still hasn't actually delivered the dollars, although it's about to, right? That's a triumph, but mm -hmm. it's a slow triumph. It just seems illustrative of all of the public policy areas that we sometimes see what ought to be done. And it's so frustrating to see how hard it is to make it actually happen amidst all the things happening, like whether or not our government will be completely taken over by authoritarians, you know, <laughs> right. right? Like, how would that conversation go with your old self? The first thing that I would say is, grasshopper, you can't do everything. These are systems that have taken generations to create, and they will take generations to undo. Um, and you, you can't do everything, but you can do something. And so stick with it and don't let the cynicism or the potential for cynicism undermine your commitment to be part of the solution and to be a person dedicated to the greater good of others and to service. That is the first thing I would say. And the second thing I would say is, you know, even though you're 
or what I would say to a young person now is like, even though you're mad now and you're disgusted that we exist in a country where you can have the kind of rhetoric that we saw from the Republicans in the midterms and you can have cities of carnage and you just have blatantly racist attitudes and perspectives, we have in the past 13 years reduced the overall incarcerated population in this country by close to a quarter. We have reduced racial disparities. We haven't fixed them for sure. There's a lot of work to be done, but we've reduced them significantly. You have someone in the White House who played a a key role in passing the 1994 crime bill of which there was a, a parade of horribles death penalty provisions and habitual offender stuff and sending money to states so that they would abolish parole and then the money would help them build prisons and 100,000 cops and all of that. And that same person in the White House, his latest proposals, he decriminalized marijuana possession, doesn't do much with the prison population, but that is a signal of evolution and some of the the latest proposals that he has are to use the power of the federal government to help states decarcerate and to actually give them incentive funding if they reduce their jail and prison population so we are making progress it may feel glacial and indeed sometimes it is glacial but we have to be patient hope it's a discipline We have to wake up every morning and commit ourselves to hope and working for its benefit. And we will get this done because there are thousands of us out here doing the work. And your job is to do that work and to bring tens and hundreds in with you. I'm I'm very appreciative of you being part of the solution and your time to talk to me today. Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? I think you asked all of the right questions. I think we were able to talk about the fact that there's a job for Democrats to do and for reformers to do to own safety and justice and that the answers are clear. I think we talked about the fact that there is progress that has been made over the past few decades and it's really substantial progress, and that that work continues at the state and local level, and that people should not lose hope by having seen and listened to the rhetoric in the last midterms uh, that, that in fact, it did not land with the effectiveness that the Republicans thought it would land. So I think that we've talked about the right things, that there's a story of hope. It takes time that work is going forward and that we are making progress. And so uh, that was a long-winded way, Nathaniel, saying, no, I think you asked everything you needed to ask. (laughs) Well, (laughs) thanks much for taking the time, Nick. Is there anything else you want to say? No, I think that covers it. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much for being interested in this issue and really digging deep. Thank you. It's an honor. That was Nick Turner. He's at vera.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. 
The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.